This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by our Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group, part of S&P Global Commodity Insights. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personalized engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. My name is Hill Vaden, and I'm your host here today with Reed Olmsted and David Boucher. Reed, David, how are you all? Doing well. Fantastic. Hard to believe it's already this time of year for uh, for our uh, session with Reed and you, but uh, here we are. Hope everyone's having a great end of the year. Yeah, this is so, so just to, to reorient people, D- David is in uh, France, Reed, Reed is in Houston with me, and this is probably the fourth year in a row that we've done a December podcast where we try to review the previous year, look forward to next year, and just have, I guess, general discussion on things energy, but also go into a little bit of pop culture at times. So, so we'll see where this one goes. And then just to out ourselves, we put this together pretty quickly. So, so our, our goal here will be applying structure, a structure where we can. So I guess, you know, looking at 2022, it's December 7th, this was kind of a year of surprises. Obviously, that the Ukraine Russia conflict, nobody had that on their bingo card, or few had that on their bingo card for for this year. Taylor Swift broke Ticketmaster, which I'm not sure anybody had on their bingo card and bothered me because I was sitting there in the Taylor Swift fan club waiting to get tickets myself and did not get in. And ESG seemed like people woke up and realized that it is a lot more complicated than a non-binding press release. So, so there's a few other surprises and I guess I'll pick on you first, Reed. If you look back at 22, looking at energy markets more broadly or the shale sector more specifically, which I know you focus on, where were some of the big surprises on your end? Yeah, the two biggest are are going to be divorced here a little bit. One is the run-up in natural gas prices. I mean, obviously, like you said, nobody had Russia, Ukraine on their bingo card, but the what that did for domestic gas prices, even absent the ability to get natural gas to that region or to Europe was just phenomenal. I would take screenshots of spot price all through the summer and send it to my colleagues of like, this is really happening. Almost, It felt almost like the exact opposite of April 2020 when I was taking screenshots of oil price and sending it to my friends and being like, this is really happening. So that was a big one. And and fortunately or unfortunately, however you look at it, that's moderated quite a bit here in the fall and through the winter back to a much more palatable price. The other one that surprised us a lot was the just the lack of growth in the, on the oil side in the first mm-hmm. half of the year. I mean, it was to say it was sluggish is to overstate or to understate what happened. I mean, we saw domestic supply just flat and and our expectation was we're going to see some robust growth and it took a while to get started and and you're we're going to look back and say okay we were five months off on on kind of the trajectory but at the time 
we just were sitting there racking our brains saying, what is going on? We're not seeing growth. We're seeing activity. We're seeing spin. We're not seeing volume. What is happening? And we looked at it from, is it, is it an operations issue? Is it a rock issue? Is it a reporting issue? And finally, it turned out it was a service sector issue, which we all kind of knew, but it took a while to, to nail down. So from an upstream side, those were the two biggest, unquestionably. All right, but I'd like to come back to both of those. I'm sure we will before we do, David. Do your surprises match those or do you have others? Yeah, and I guess I'll, I'll preface everything I say here. You know, you said you wanted to go broad, which we can do, but obviously S&P is a huge company. So I'm going to try and stay in my lane. And if I say anything super wrong, I trust that the appropriate expert will, will tell me. And certainly if you're on the client side listening to this, I'm going to try and be correct the first time, but please reach out to one of our experts if, if you have a doubt. Okay, so I or think- reach out to us. D- directly at energysense at smpglobal.com. Yeah. How's that for a plug? Yeah, <laughs> Where we are rolling, please contact us and let us know. That, that works. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be a little bit, not difficult, but I'll try and be clear in terms of, am I speaking in terms of like an expert looking at these markets versus someone actually living in Europe? Because I, I think I've gotten a, a very different perspective from my last couple of years here versus when I was back in Houston. So for people in the audience that, that don't know me, I, I grew up in the States, but I'm actually French. And so came back here after a while. And I would say that the two things that have really stuck out to me, kind of pulling back from something that Reed said, the first is that a lot of the things that we took for granted pre-COVID and pre-Russia war are being exposed. So this idea that you can just ask for anything, right? I mean, like the, the Amazon primification of the economy where you just, you turn a switch, you place an order and it gets to you. That works, but it works under super specific conditions in a very small band of, of we'll call it probability. And I think that as the world advances, we're seeing that a lot of these kind of corner cases are becoming more and more common. And so that has really exposed the difficulty of maintaining that system. So Reed is talking about high gas prices. Well, I'm, I'm feeling that here. We were talking before this recording started that I'm keeping an eye on my gas consumption. I wear a cardigan every day. I'm trying to layer up because I don't really know what my gas bill is going to be at the end of the uh, at the end of the season. And there's been a real marshalling from the French government, from the other European governments as well, to really try and get people to this reflex of like, do it for the environment. Yeah, but also do it to just generally help out your pocketbooks, like make sure that the, the critical resources have energy. So that's been a message that I've, I've been hearing loud and clear. The other thing that's kind of related to that is that not only do you have these geopolitical factors and these macro factors that can knock everything out of balance, there is a real need to invest in just invest period and then invest in spare capacity. So that's something that's going to come up, I'm sure, from Reed's point of view on the oil side. On my side, as a, as a French person living in France, I was always very proud of the fact that, hey, nuclear power, right? We have tons of that. Well, it turns out that a huge portion of the nuclear fleet is out. And so rather than being an exporter, rather than being someone that can produce and consume energy domestically, we have to now play catch up and then obviously buy energy at market prices. So I'm veering away from oil, but I think the story is going to be the same in all of the energy markets, right? It's that it's extremely fragile. And if you don't keep up with it, and we'll call it the normal times, it becomes very hard to react when things do get tough and you get some of those corner cases. Well, and so, so I, I mentioned kind of jokingly at the beginning that the Taylor Swift broke Ticketmaster, and you, you guys both kind of hinted that the service sector broke in some ways in 2022. And I think it's not too wrong to, to say that the, the institutional investor approach to the shale sector ended up breaking the service sector because there wasn't a lot of kit that was ready to put to work when high prices 
said, hey, kid, it's time to get back to work. And, and so now we're, we're coming away from that. And, and Reed, I, I would, it sounded like that was it for thinking about things we got right or got wrong this year. Would that be in the, in the we got wrong camp in terms of initial assumptions? I think we got the rig, the rig activity right. But when, when I go back and look at our rig activity, that we really haven't buried our outlook there through the year. But what we got wrong was the completions market. And for those that aren't as deep in the weeds as I spend my life, there are two primary operations that go into creating a well. One is you got to drill it and then you have to complete or frack it. We had sufficient drilling rigs at a price, obviously. And, and so a lot of inflation in in that business this year, but we did not have a, a corresponding fleet of fracking equipment. And that's a harder one to get visibility on. But that's where, like when we look at where we missed it, it was it was in that nuanced aspect of the business. And is that in, in part because the the operators, the the upstream sector slowed so much that it was hard for to, to David's point earlier that it is hard to maintain capacity that's not working, and therefore you end up neglecting it. And then when you bring it back, it's it's not a quick, it's it's not a switch. It's not what, what did David say the the Amazon Prime effect. So so a few things happened here. One is the whole. The whole upstream business in North America has been pushed into a different model. It's it's pivoted in the last couple of years from grow, 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 grow your production, grow your reserves, all of that. Now to all right, uh, you've graduated college, now pay now pay back all your loans. And so that the upstream producers, so your large U.S. independents, they've made that pivot. But their their suppliers, the the drilling contractors and the completion for companies are still doing that and they're still they still have a lot of debt on their books from rebuilding after the downturn of 2015 and 16. And so they're reluctant to spend capital bringing back cannibalized equipment or building new equipment, particularly in light of supply chain difficulties and high prices. They're reluctant to spend capex to bring that back. The other thing that I was at a conference a few weeks ago and about Everybody that got up talked about labor. Labor rates are through the roof. It is almost impossible to hire people. You hire them, they want. It sounded like a, a bunch of guys my dad's age saying, these guys don't know how good they've got it. But <laughs> the expectations of manual labor is very different now than it was like four years ago. <laughs> these drilling contractors are saying, oh, they want internet out on the rigs and they want a work-life balance. So oh, these young whippersnappers. But, <laughs> But that costs money and it pushes people when when I see gas stations locally offering 20 bucks an hour, it's like I'm not going to say that I'd rather have. You, know, you look at the, the work life balance at 20 bucks an hour versus what a drilling rig might offer and people are saying, well, I'll go work at a gas station and, you know, just not spend as much. So that's really what we've seen is the crunch is, is the, the labor market and then just a lack of desire to invest. You've got this looming energy transition. You've got investors saying, I'm not going to value anything that takes you more than five years to develop. And so people, people considering getting into the business are like, well, I've got a five-year career. Why am I going to do that? And I got a five-year career where I've got to like be away from my family. I don't have internet all that stuff. So they just aren't interested in doing it. 
And David, I trust you're seeing that show up in in the spending outlook on your side uh, as well. Yeah, no, and I think just to, to back up what Rita's saying, I mean, I started my career on on the rigs and I learned a lot, but I also really wouldn't want to go back to it unless I had to. And that's not, I mean, I don't want anyone to take that the wrong way here. It's just, it is really, really difficult. And I think that if you have, if you look at your personal costs, your financial costs, like that has to be matched, right? And so I completely understand on one hand, the, the pure numbers part that the service companies are seeing. I also understand it from the side of people who might be thinking, well, do I want to do this or not? Because there is quite a, a large work-life balance trade-off that, that, that you have to make. And I guess what's interesting is that, uh, so we are seeing kind of an escalation and, and my colleagues on the, the cost team can talk about this. We are seeing an escalation in like unit price, right? Because there's, whenever you're talking total spending, there's a price times quantity aspect. So on the quantity side, you know, Reed has kind of said the completions are sort of, they've been lower maybe than what was expected or what was needed. On the pricing side, though, this was telegraphed by my cost colleagues last year, is that there is definitely some escalation. And I think part of that is the fact that you're just catching up from how far it fell during during COVID. But mm -hmm. I think the other part is now it's going beyond that because you have these two components. One is just sort of nominal inflation, which is really high now. And then you have this other component, which is the market inflation. And, and so you put the two together and you have something that is is really quite high. And then the other comment I'll make just to go back to, to what you've been saying about Ticketmaster, you know, I think what that exposes actually, and this is going back to my, my comment earlier about things being knocked off balances, resilience is not just internal, resilience is the system as a whole. And without getting too down the rabbit hole to Ticketmaster, that's basically a monopoly now, right? And so I think where there's a difference in North American service market is that there it's a very fragmented market, right? And so right now the incentives, especially if you're public, are to reward what the shareholders want. That's the incentive, right? Is do whatever it takes to, to get the share price up. But you have to trust that at some point someone's going to see like a, a lane. And and because there is a diffuse market, because people are free to try new things, you, you have to think that at some point we get out of this logjam, right? So I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of things at play here. But for now, I would definitely confirm that, yeah, shortage of equipment. And then as a result, prices are, are coming up and they're expected to go up for at least the next uh, year or so. And were we were we writer or, or did we get closer on some of the, uh, the the harder assets in the spending outlook? And was it the labor that really surprised us, or, or did, did the uh, I guess the percentage growth of everything within the system outperform our expectations? Well, it's gonna it's gonna vary. So if we're talking globally now, it's obviously gonna vary. The picture is gonna be different if you're looking at a North American frac crew versus a, a valve supplier, you know, supplying to North Sea, for example. It's gonna be a different picture. If you've been doing this a long time, you will at some point have seen the the rise of everything. I mean, steel, if you labor is one that comes up, but I think steel is the one that if I had to pick, you know, what's the one that always comes up again, talking globally, it's steel. So I think having done this for a while, I wouldn't say I'm surprised to see any one element go up, but to see so many of them go up at the same time, mm -hmm. at the same magnitude, and also not really see a clear mechanism for how it works out because the supply chains are so stretched. And because the investors are so demanding, I think we will find a way out of it. I mean, things change, but unlike past kind of typical booms and busts, we'll call it, there doesn't seem to be a, a clear way out, given the fact that the circumstances are so particular for this time that we're in right now. So one of the other things that, that you know, I, I flagged in the introduction was ESG. And, and if, if th those who have listened to, to last year's re review and resolution podcast know that we finish talking about we, we finished the podcast talking about the 
call it the, the, the pressure, the pressure or, or the motivation to invest in low carbon initiatives, regardless of the energy sector, upstream, downstream, power, whatever. And I, I think, you know, as evidence, David, by your comment earlier about nuclear in France, and that's not perhaps as easy or as easy to turn back on. And, it, and some consider it green, some consider it less green. But from y'all's perspective, both, you know, sitting really with an historical upstream pedigree, the ESG story is changing in what is green, how energy reliance or security feeds into what what is ESG. Obviously, the headline as of, I think, last night or this morning, that there's a small hedge fund, I think, coming after BlackRock and and Larry Fink for how they managed ESG, they they being BlackRock. Looking at upstream kind of from the inside and looking out, is that, are you seeing perception within the upstream sector change? and or from outside the upstream sector, is it becoming, you know, gas being the obvious one for me, is shale per- perhaps greener than people imagine because gas is a carbon improvement relative to coal and other things. David, maybe I'll start with you and in France in your cardigan. Yeah, that's right. I guess on a, on a personal note, I, I don't know that I understand the, the the rivalry that like, it's almost like you're in a team. It's like you're in team oil and gas, so you're in team Mm-hmm. renewables and i'm not sure i understand that because you know granted energy is can take different forms but at the end of the day it's energy and like i would i would take any molecule i could at this point or any kilojoule i could because we just need energy right so i think it's like you can't you know the world cup's going on right now a goalie is useful but you can't have a team full of goalies you need a team of everything right and so i think when we talk about green energy i think so much of it unfortunately is like the dialogue's a bit tainted by this idea that you're implying that one is is dirty and 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 one isn't and okay fine that may be true but at this point today and for the next couple of years they're all going to be useful and we need as many of them as possible right so having said that if if i kind of think about what's happening yeah in my country and europe the 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 momentum is definitely towards batteries and cars it's definitely towards renewable renewable so- sources of energy but I just, you know, I just don't see, I don't know that it's constructed necessarily to pit one against the other. And the last thing I'll say before I turn it over Reed to read is that I work in CCUS. So let's talk specifically that technology. Let's talk specifically decarbonization. I, I understand why it's so exciting. And we get asked about this all the time. So Hill, if you're asking me like, you know, what's the conversation with our clients, it comes up constantly, you know, what's your forecast for, for renewables? Uh, you know, w- what's your viewpoint on CCUS? But I'm going to be a little bit cynical here and say I understand why it's hard to get adoption on something like that, because it sounds great on paper. But what you're trying to do is deploy technology that should serve everyone. Right. I mean, I think hopefully at this point we all agree that it it would be good to protect the environment by decarbonizing. But you're asking companies to basically they're they're wanting to find a profit from something that should just be a social good right and we can debate whether you know the morality of that but that's what we're essentially asking like this should be a social good it should just be yeah let's go ahead and do this but companies aren't going to do that because they have investors there's a profit motive and so you're trying to put those two very at tension ideas together and hopefully get it into a market that coalesces into a solution going forward but for now there's that tension this should happen because it's a social good is it going to happen because we're asking individual companies to do it, but they want to make a profit at the same time? 
There's somewhat of a pharmaceutical dilemma. There, yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. We, we opened our second quarter forecast with a statement, and this was for U.S., the world needs all forms of energy all the time, right? And so to your point, David, like, yeah, we're on team energy. The problem is you can look at like what happened with the bill that passed, what, over the summer in the U.S. or, or fall, the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you're going to spend $350 billion on energy right now, is it better and the world needs energy? How do you place that money? And, and the U.S. government chose to focus on technologies and opportunities that are thought to be greener, which is great. And hopefully in 20 years that pays off. It doesn't help you in your cardigan today. And so I think that's where we start to see a little bit of the, you know, I've got to invest, if I have money to invest, how do I do it? I will say, I think that there's been a a shift, not necessarily for like oil, oil versus gas. In fact, I did a, I I had a conversation a few months ago about like, are we seeing a a preference for gas investment versus oil investment by all kinds of different investors? And we're not, we're seeing hedge funds and institutional and everybody long only ETFs are all investing in all energy. They don't care. Similar similar moves in coal and clean tech. They're investing in every type of energy. But back to your question initially, Hill, on ESG, in North America, ESG is now table stakes. You've got to do it. Nobody is getting a premium in their stock because, oh, I'm I'm monitoring better than somebody else. Like, no, you have to monitor your pipelines for leaks. You have to be replacing your pneumatic valves. You've got to be doing these things. That's just, you know, a car has to have four wheels that hold air. That's just what's expected of the business right now. I, I will say, though, I think coming back to the broader point, you're not seeing value, you're not seeing stock appreciation for that. And I think you know, we're we're having conversations internally about like, well, the companies are doing everything right. They're returning value to shareholders. They're doing ESG. They're not growing. Why aren't we getting the stock value appreciation when they're doing everything? And I think the bigger issue is what happens in five years. I mentioned this a few minutes ago of a lot of the industry, a lot of the conversation is around, well, we, we aren't going to need conventional or unconventional upstream in five years. Mm-hmm all the ESG you want. And in five years, we're going to be, you know, we're going to have unicorn dust and and carriers powering everything. <laughs> That's not the case. So I think it's good that they continue to invest in cleaner cleaner technologies. To David's point, you know, it it's, it's the right thing to do. Well, but I think there's a horizon there. It's the right thing to do long term. Is it the right thing to do now? Yes, it is. But are there competing interests and motivations? I think right now, with the, the the clearly articulated fragility of the system, clean's got to take a second, got to take a backseat to David's cardigan. Has the tent gotten bigger in 2022? And I asked two or three years ago, I was talking with one of the shale sector investor relations person, and he was just back from New York where he couldn't get any meetings. And he said, man, I can't even get somebody to short me. He said, nobody wants to take any time to talk to me right now. And it, I, I feel like, and this is just a feeling, I don't know if it's real, that the ESG or the low carbon tent has gotten bigger and maybe partly with the IRA emphasizing hydrogen in the way it has. Hydrogen is really, in my mind, the domain of the IOCs, the integrated oil companies, and and they've got a lot of experience there. Is upstream back at the table in ways that that previously it wasn't even 
able to contrib contribute to the conversation. So I think for North America upstream, we're back at the table, but for a different reason. We're back at the table for the for the converse, two conversations. One is how much money am I getting out of you this this year? And and if an investor, you know, you mentioned IOC, you mentioned the, the big global integrated. Nobody is asking U.S. independents to become hydrogen dominant companies. They're like, all right, well, you you've run your course. We still have a need for you. Uh, we're still going to need oil and gas, but give me a whole bunch of money so that I can go invest in startups or alternative technologies, things like that. So that's what we're seeing really in that front. The other side that we're seeing sort of U.S. dominant EMPs back at the table is, oh, snap, we're going to need to get that U.S. and this vast resource of cheap natural gas over to Europe for the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. We said we could do it, but now we're actually being asked to do it. Is that feasible? What are the things it takes? When you look at the fact that our outlooks have no more interstate pipelines for natural gas, we don't think, you know, even if even if the federal government is okay with it, we think that state, they're going to get bogged down in ports and cost overruns and all that. Okay, so we got this huge resource in Appalachia, can't get it to the Gulf Coast, can't build any more infrastructure to the Gulf Coast, so we're kind of capped there. How do we get Permian gas? How much more does the Haynesville have to get? So we're seeing questions on the natural gas side of, look, the system, you guys have always said we could do this. Now it's time to step up and deliver. And, and so people are saying, oh, oh can, can we actually do that? On the ESG side, I don't, or on the carbon side, I'm not seeing a whole lot of interest in, oh, you guys have proven you can you can operate cleaner. Let's Let's now, entertain an investment in your in your equities like that's not happening yeah, yeah and I, there's now there's a, a bunch i could pick up on there you know if we go back to surprises right uh, the ira itself was kind of surprised originally this whole effort was sort of thought of as dead in the water and it came almost out of nowhere but i think to, to highlight just how difficult this is going to be we all breathe the same air so the ira should be good for the world but you know president macron gave an interview on 60 minutes a few days ago and he has an issue with it because he's saying that basically this is a, a protectionist bill, which is, you know, defavoring the European manufacturing base at the expense of America's. And I totally understand the American point of view on that. I can sort of see President Macron's point of view. But what's what's the point at which everyone gets together and, and we really start moving forward? And again, just to show you how difficult this is, when do we acknowledge that that is a big deal? I mean, you know, three or four years ago under the previous administration, we wouldn't have even gotten that, right? So yeah. we have a success where now an issue is being taken. And so how do you kind of hash that out going forward? And then to Reed's point in, in terms of like not asking, you know, an independent to become a hydrogen company, what did Schlumberger do this year? Now, I'll be, be up front with everyone. My family has a long history with Schlumberger, which is not ongoing anymore. So I'm just saying this now as an outside observer, but like, that's a big deal, what they announced. I mean, they started as an oil field services company, and now they're saying they're not going to be. So the question is, how much of this, how quickly does this come into play? Like, what's the point, how far along down the road is it where oil and gas is, say, 5% of their portfolio, right, or something not meaningful? How far down the line is that? And also, you know, history is pretty full of companies that made big pivots, and it didn't work out. So for them to to go this way, I mean, I wouldn't say it was totally unexpected. You knew these companies were leaning that way, but to totally say, okay, this is who we are now, we're we're fully in this decision. I think that's a big thing, and maybe we'll see more of it 
But that to me was a big surprise as well to see really the the leader in the services space or, you know, the self-appointed leader, at least I think mm-hmm. we can say that, go that direction. I mean, they're very, they, they have European roots. So are, are some of the competitive service companies that started in North America who don't necessarily have that lineage and that culture, are they going to follow suit? We don't know. But I think for me, that was a, a big story this year. And to some extent, I would say that tent has certainly expanded, the table has expanded, where Schlumberger also changed its name last year, right, or this year to, to SLB. Um, right. And yep. some of the other service companies are now helping to lead the dialogue around things like carbon capture and, and other low carbon, I mean, wind being an obvious one as well, or offshore wind. So, so the, the table, you know, one of you said we breathe the same air, that the table does seem to have expanded and energy is energy, maybe less so than, than the us versus them narrative of a couple of years ago. And us, us versus them in terms of like um, service companies. Low carbon, being, high carbon. It's hard to say, like I'm, I'm not a CEO. I think right. if I were, I would, I, my job is to say, okay, you know, where do I think I can make the most money for, for my shareholders, right? And I would presume that, and I, it's, it's okay, I'm not going to say Schlumberger. If I'm a service company, right, I'm saying, okay, here's what I do now. This is my core competency. I service this particular market. In five or 10 years time, is this market still going to be around for me to service? So, you know, I think that, you know, the whole us versus them thing, I guess it works. But like when the rubber meets the road and I'm just trying to make money, I'm totally agnostic, right? I mean, I'm just going to go where I think the most most money is. So I think for that particular constituency hill, you know, the, the ones that are making these decisions, I, I can't really see it being an us versus them. I think it's really got to be a question of, you know, what's my cost benefit for all these opportunities. It's, it's much more of a just objective, rational discussion. So I'm going to I'm going to take the other side of that one, David, which is always good. Hill likes for us to disagree. <laughs> so I would say that and I primarily deal with North America upstream investors and operators. There's probably not a CEO of a low carbon company, technology company, that would like to be share the stage at a quote unquote energy conference with the CEO of a U.S. independent. That's like, fair. They that's are fair. still, you know, you're not going to get you're not going to get somebody that's over here, you know, if their selling point is we're cleaner, we're a cleaner alternative. They don't want to share the stage. So within that. Within the the energy producer side, I think there still is an us versus them aspect. And we see that a little bit because, you know, I mentioned earlier that we're seeing investment across the board going up. But that's, I I think, that like across the board for all energy, I mean, redistribution and infrastructure and everything. But I think that's an acute phenomenon. I think in five years or three years, that will probably be changing. And so, so we're in a we're in a peculiar time right now. And I always say, oh, we're in a strange time. But when you consistently have strange times, maybe that's just the world you live in. But we are in a strange time right now. I think for energy markets, as things moderate in the next few years, and hopefully we get some clarity, I think that we'll start to see the preferences. Um, you know, we'll start to see cleaner energy technologies and opportunities. Probably grab an increasingly large share of the pie. All right. So I've got uh, and one of the hardest things about doing this end of your podcast with two of you guys is, is ending it. So I could let it roll on for, for, for God knows how long. I'm going to ask 
three questions to, to each of you just to, to, to wrap it up. And David, I'm going to start with you. And I'm going to start with you in, for one reason, because Reed uh, is wearing an Astros t-shirt, which is in part a reflection of the Astros World Series victory earlier this year. And there is, for my money, the game of the World Cup this Saturday uh, between yeah. England and France. Yeah. And oh, I have... England winning the whole thing because so it's long. coming home. I'm going on record that okay. it's coming home this year. I assume you disagree, uh, but but one, I'd like your prediction on the uh, France-England game. Two, I would like your New Year's resolution for 2023. And three, I would like the, the thing that, that has you most curious about energy markets in 2023. OK, so for uh, maybe maybe because you're asking me the question, you didn't know this either. But like I'm, I'm half French on my dad's side, I'm half English on my mom's side. So I picked up the American <laughs> accent growing up. So this is actually my two my two family teams facing off. And I'll tell you that, you know, for some reason, maybe it's because I was educated in French schools. I just feel more French and I live here. And I will also tell you that the last two times France has won, I've just been in the country. First time I lived there, second time I was visiting. So I'm going to hope third time that's the same. And I'm going to say I hope France will win, but I also think it's going to be a lot more of a fight than the previous the previous uh, games have been. And it's been a tournament full of upsets. So my my heart is on France. I hope they're going to win, but I think it's going to be tough. So that's my first one. Second is you asked what my New Year's resolution is going to be. I think that it's probably similar to what I may have said last year, which is that uh, you know 2021 seemed to crawl, but 2022 just flew. And I heard someone say a while back, I, maybe I read it somewhere, but we always look back on the past as being the good times, but today is tomorrow's good times. And I think you don't really realize it unless you just sort of sit with it, basically. So I definitely want to do a good job. I want to do the best I can for the people that I work with and work for. But I really also want to make an effort to just enjoy the fact that I've got other stuff going on and, I, you know, I'm lucky to have that. And so I shouldn't throw the scale off balance for one side or the other. I really want to make sure that I enjoy everything now so that in 10 years time I can say, well, I made the best of of that and do the same thing in 10 years and hopefully, you know, be be mindful the rest of my life. But that's really what I want to do is just be more mindful of what's going on. And the third one in terms of surprises, I mean, geez, like how do you top a global pandemic and you know, a land war in Europe, it's it's hard. One thing that I always, well, I don't always come back to, but I see it more in terms of living in Europe is just the different attitudes around consumption. And ultimately, you know, energy, I said earlier, we need all kinds of energy, but practically speaking, different energy services, different things, right? I mean, if you want a big giant pickup truck right now, it's much easier to do that by buying a gas engine than it is to buy a battery, right? And so when I think of the United States, which has a, a low portion of the world's consumption, but a relatively high portion of emissions, I see that contrast very strongly here in terms of how people live in Europe. So I'm definitely taking it much more down to the micro level. But I think if you saw a big shift in consumption habits either way, so like Europeans consuming a lot more or Americans consuming a lot less, that would personally surprise me just in terms. So I'm not on the supply side. I'm on the demand side now. But I think a, a real surprise for me now would be a shift in consumption patterns and the types of energy that uh, different populations around the world favor. All right, Reed, I don't even know if you watch soccer or football, um, so, but same questions to you. England, France on Saturday, New Year's resolution for 23 and the, the uncertainty in energy markets that has you most curious about 23. Well, for those that have listened to this, this podcast in years past, you'll recall I have children and so I do watch soccer, both my my uh, nine and 11 year old boys played club soccer this season. So 
I, I have. I watched the USA games and in true American fashion, now that we're not part of it, I'm not watching. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I will make a sports comment, something that is relevant to probably lots of our podcasters. Jason Verlander announced last night he's moving to the Mets. My take on that, probably okay. He was a good pitcher. He was expensive, but we can get some young talent. Look at what happened with Correa and Pena. So I'll leave Still it at that. So um, high. You know, I was thinking as I after I dropped my kids off this morning, I was driving home, kind of thinking about what we were going to discuss today. And he'll never preps us. He just, you know, it's it's off the cuff, which is a lot of fun. But I was thinking about my New Year's resolution last year, which I recall quoting Bill Watterson's comic strip of Calvin and Hobbes saying, "I think the world should change to to fit me." And while that didn't happen, <laughs> my resolution this year is just to be better. You know, a lot of people were resolved to run a marathon. I look at that as a goal. I think being, I think that a resolution needs to be something you can't quantify. And I think I just need work to consciously and consistently be better, be a better father, a better colleague, a better spouse. Just, I look back and, you know, like David said, today is tomorrow's yesterday, but I can look back at yesterday and say, oh, I could have done that better. You know, I could have, I could have coached this, this young analyst better, or, you know, I coach baseball. I could have, I could have done things differently that would have been better. And so it's really just be more discerning in the now so that I can look back and identify that I was better when I look back. So so there's that. And then the third one was, what, what am I watching for? What's going to surprise me? This, if you think you were a little bit on the micro side, David, I'm going to go real micro here and share a little bit of my personal interest. I am fascinated with the electric truck market. Rivian has a phenomenal vehicle. The Ford Lightning is coming out. I'm seeing more of those. I've actually seen a couple Hummer EVs. I am really interested to see Tesla doesn't have the Cybertruck yet. It's gone back and forth, but I'm really interested to see the adoption and the daily usability of these new upstart or not even upstart, but just the new delivery of electric trucks. I have a truck. I have a diesel truck. I don't drive it because it's insanely expensive these days. <laughs> but I keep thinking, could I take a could I could I drive out to the Texas Hill Country in it? It's 280 miles to my friend's house out there. Okay, I'm probably going to have to stop and charge. And I've read horror stories about everybody trying to charge. And so I'm looking, I'm really watching that market to see what's the adoption rate, what, how do people respond to them, how good is the charging networking network becoming? Because you know, it, it's something that really just interests me. I like, I like trucks, I like power, I like speed. And so that to me, I don't know if it'll be a surprise, but that's something that just on a, on a personal level, I'm really watching. On a professional level in markets, you know, what would surprise me these days, like David said, if anybody isn't expecting, uh, and if, if people aren't expecting Godzilla to come out of the ocean, shame on them. If, if you're surprised by anything these days in energy markets, you just haven't been paying attention in the last three years. <laughs> so nothing in, nothing in global energy would surprise me at this point. Hill, what's your resolution for next year? My resolution, I, I'll... But in a sense, this kind of pulls on y'all's, but but I th there are a couple things this year that, that really jumped out at me personally. What One was a trip to Big Bend that I did with my daughter that was one of my highlights of the year. It's the first time that she's ever ridden in the front seat. We, were, we, we didn't ride in the front seat on I-10, but we were riding in the front seat uh, of our forerunner throughout the desert, all the windows down, all the windows open, blasting music. And kind of related to that is 
I started taking more time to just kind of sit still when, when I wasn't working. And <laughs> as a parent, I go to work, I go to soccer carpool, I help with algebra homework, which algebra is much harder than I recall it being. And then I go to bed and I'm trying to take, I would like to take more time in 2023 to, to in a sense, be idle outside work. Uh, I don't want to be idle and ex- instead of work. <laughs> so, so I think that would be my New Year's resolution. There you go. And who, who's who's your pick, France versus England? Uh, England, for sure. I got England winning the whole thing. And, and I, at least as of today, I'm leading our office pool. I've gotten a few wrong, but, but I've got England. Uh, I'm, I the, the 26 players on the England team, you got eight. You got what, 14 players? You got 11 players on the bench that could start for many of the countries also in the World Cup. So, so, I'm a big fan. so this could devolve, but I'm going to give myself the last word. Two or two words, as a matter of fact, Kylian Mbappe. We have we have him, so he's been the difference maker, and and hopefully that will be the case on on game day. Gareth Southgate has an embarrassment of riches in the okay. defensive position. You got Kyle Walker, you got Trippier, you have got Trent Alexander, Arnold. So I I think if any defense can manage Kylian Mbappe, but yes, Kylian Mbappe looks absolutely exceptional, as does Mbappe. Says name on the other side yeah. and yeah. uh, R- R- Rabot, yeah, and well, yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where uh, soccer is one of those games that makes you wonder what you've done with your life because Mbappe is in his early 20s and uh, <laughs> I have not yet won a world cup, so I guess he's doing something <laughs> right. And I'm I not, no, I think, no, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I guess let's we can file this away and next year you can add this to the list of things you got right and wrong. We can talk about the, the world cup game that happened 12 months ago. There you go. One of us will be right. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, I look forward to already doing this again next year. And we can sign off from here. Thanks to both of you. Thank you all. Um, thanks, everybody. Great Christmas and uh, Happy New Year to all. This podcast contains insights and data copyrighted by S&P Global. To learn more about our solutions or read additional market research, visit us at spglobal.com.